Welcome to the Business of Open Source. Every week, we explore different aspects of the relationship between money and open source software, talking with industry experts about monetizing open source projects, building a company around an open source or several open source projects, and the business value that open source provides. Thank you for joining me. Welcome to the Business of Open Source. I am Emily O'Meara, your host, and today I'm chatting with Michael Chang, who is the Chief Legal Officer at Alaria Technologies and has a deep and varied experience with open source. So thank you so much for joining me, Michael. Awesome. Great to be here. For people who don't know you or know your work, can you introduce yourself? Yeah. So I am a lifelong open source contributor. I started out in network engineering in the late 90s. I've done a ton of things since then, everything from being an M&A lawyer to a product manager at Facebook. That was sort of the role that I took on where I started working in open source. And so as part of that role, I've also joined a number of technology nonprofits as a board member, including the Linux Foundation. I helped worked on lots of open source technologies at Facebook, including GraphQL, React, and all sorts of things. But yeah, I, I've considered myself to be a advocate for developers and open source maintainers in the open source world. And yeah, I'm glad to be here. So one of the things that I find really fascinating about your history is that you have both this uh, obviously experience with open source, but also some with big business, with big companies. So can you give us a little bit of an insight about what a company like Facebook is thinking about when determining, like, are we going to open source this project or not? Or even what do we want from the open source ecosystem in general? What do we want from an open source project that we're creating? Yeah. So taking a step back, I think that I can't speak to Facebook specifically, but I have worked with a lot of large companies and I'm happy to talk about my general experiences with them. I think it's people often try to prescribe or predict certain things that large companies do as either caring about open source or having a specific intentionality or having a specific strategy behind open source. Coming from the inside, it often, that's not actually the way it works out. Large company decision-making is often fraught with a lot of paralysis associated with too many cooks in the kitchen, too many stakeholders. And so I don't think that large companies think that carefully or think that you know, by virtue of how many, how many stakeholders there are in a room, I don't think large companies are capable of doing, having a lot of intentional strategy around open source in that sense, right? I, I do think that smaller companies for whom the open source communities and open source strategy plays a larger role in their revenue generation, I think they're much more capable of thinking about it in a concerted, coherent manner, right? That being the case, I think to answer your question, I think that as a result in large companies, it is often very individual driven. It is often driven by the principal engineer who feels very, very strongly about a specific thing, right? He or she, through their political clout, then goes off and basically defeats all of the detractors who may raise their hand and get in the way of something. I think that's, there's often been a champion who feels strongly in one way or the other, and then everything results from that. So first question, I have a lot of questions there, but the first question I have actually is, what do the detractors say? Like in, in this sort of hypothetical situation where you have a principal engineer saying, hey, we need to 
do more open source or whatever, and then uses their political clout to, you know, bulldoze over whoever disagrees. What are those voices of disagreement usually bringing up? It really depends on the company, right? Certain companies may want to be in everything. Amazon, Microsoft, these are companies that probably could be and may be in everything, right? They don't. These are very sort of business-driven companies, business management-driven companies, right? Uh, A first type of detractor would be someone who'd be like, hey, you're open sourcing something in this area. We are not doing anything in this area right now, but we could be in the future, right? So you are presumably limiting the future revenue of a particular line of business, right? That is an often detractor. Now, Facebook did very, very specific things and did not do very specific things, right? So those detractors really did not exist because I think our swim lanes were a lot clearer, right? But relative to, um, I imagine at Microsoft or Google or, or some of these other larger conglomerates that do a lot more things, those are the first type of detractors. Another detractor is HR is sometimes a detractor. And the reason for that is because when someone becomes a BDFL or when someone, sorry, a beneficial dictator for life or a chief maintainer or the head maintainer of a company-sponsored open source project, they then develop a second persona associated with the open source community, right? So then you have, hey, I'm, uh, I'm Jane Doe. I'm speaking to you in my capacity as principal engineer at you know, AcmeSoft. Uh, but then I also have this other persona where I'm Jane Doe. I'm, I'm speaking to you as chief maintainer of Acne Hub project or something, right? And as the maintainer of the community, they often are not going to toe the same party line and not going to be subject to the same comms restrictions that principal engineer of AcmeSoft would be, right? So if like there's a big, big controversy that comes up, maybe something that is politically relates to political identity or sexual orientation or something, they would feel pressure to speak up and to take a public stand as a community maintainer, something that, as a company perspective, may not align with a company's like marketing or comm strategy, right? People in HR who've seen this play out, this like dynamic play out over and over again would probably also raise their head and, and worry about that, right? And then also, there's also a host of other you know, just generally just based on how open source works, right? It is in many ways a, a loophole to not do things through the company, right? It is no longer a company product, it is no longer a company this, right? So a lot of other teams will have a lot of questions about, is this a company thing or is this like a personal thing? And when those lines get blurred, it does have the potential to create, a, a, you know, some discomfort among, among relevant stakeholders. Yeah, it makes me think one of the things I like to to talk about in terms of messaging and positioning with maintainers is that you have to take a stand on stuff. Um, and when I say that, I don't mean political issues, but I mean stuff that's relevant to the project. However, I can see how you could potentially, you know, express an opinion relevant to your project, say like XYZ technology is good and XYZ technology is bad. That That's the kind of opinion I, I generally would say, you know, you, you should take a stand on if if it's relevant. But I could see how that would make a big company's like comms people really uncomfortable. What you're saying there, I think, makes sense in terms of advising people to take a stand on certain things, but not political or social things. 
I do feel like sometimes in a lot of these very big communities, the social, political, code of conduct stuff, that seems to be all that's happening a lot. There's a lot of that that's happening with a lot of these big communities. And so sometimes I think TSC members or people may find it difficult to be neutral on these things, right? Because neutrality is a form of silence is consent and all that other stuff, right? And so in some of these communities where people are very, very concerned about these kind of things, and I found maintainers put in very impossible positions. Yeah, I'm just saying, like, that's not my lane. But even the stuff that is my lane, that is not, you know, even remotely politically controversial, I can see how it could be. It could be uncomfortable for a big company's PR department, you know, even thinking something like, no, we don't want you to say XYZ is a bad way to build an application or a bad way to approach this problem because that's how half of our technology is built, for example. Or they're monetizing customers who do it that way. Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Or they want to recruit engineers who have a specific skill set. So you don't want them saying like, you know, XYZ language is not appropriate or is a bad choice. Do you think it's a problem that this is so individual driven? I mean, do you think this hurts big companies to to not have like a cohesive type of policy towards open source? I think one of the differences, one of the reasons why I sort of approached open source a little bit differently is because I sort of came from product management, right? And so I think about everything in in a very product management lens. Uh, and also because I was a, a lawyer before, and so I also think about things in a, I'm still a lawyer, but you know, I think about things in terms of legal sense, right? And so the challenge that I see is people and companies are not thinking about the evolution of a project and the different kind of archetypes that a project could be. And so there is a type of open source project where the company, the the project objectives do not have any interactions or any kind of interactions with company strategy or do not affect company strategy in a material way. This is something we use on our infrastructure. We're not in the infrastructure game. Here it is, right? And I think in those cases, right, the way that all of the maintainers, all the people who participate in the project that are also employees of the company should be behaving in a specific way, which is, this is something I'm doing in my spare time. I'm not acting in my capacity as a company employee. I won't be using company resources. I'll just be doing this in my spare time. And that's that. And then there are projects that are more sort of closely aligned with the company strategy, right? Where it's either like a headline project, like in the case of like, let's say Mongo, their headline open source project, is also the basis of, of the proprietary stack, right? Or it's something to the side a little bit, right? Maybe it's something, maybe there is a long-term strategic play. Maybe they're seeking to commoditize something that their competitors are using, right? So maybe it's, it's a long-arc strategic play. In those cases, I think that the folks should be operating like company employees, right? And the teams and the uh, projects and the, those, you know, the marketing committees and all the, those should be company marketing people. They they should be and and they should be disclaimed as such, right? So that the open source community knows that hey, this is open source in that the license is open source, but like don't expect to, you know, open up a PR suggest a fundamental rearchitecture of where this thing is going and accept it and expect it to be like well received. 
right? Because this is actually like a kind of a company kind of thing, right? And I think it is the like first off, I think people aren't thinking about things in 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 these buckets, right? Uh, they aren't thinking about these things in these buckets. And then more most more importantly, I think folks are not tracking as a project evolves from one bucket to the other, right? Projects often start with like, hey, you know, just to get the detractors back off, right? People often come up with all kinds of, oh yeah, this is going to be good for the company, or this has got all kinds of benefits and whatever. But like, you quickly find out that none of those exist, and those were all just said during the approval process, right? And then it just becomes, okay, well, this is just your personal pet project, right? And so people aren't tracking the ship between the two, and so, sometimes it shifts back. Sometimes it's a personal pet project, but then you know circumstances change, and it, and it now becomes a company priority. So a really common way I see for people to start open source companies, you know, like where the open source project is really fundamental for the the company's revenue growth is for the the open source project to actually start as something they created in their day job at a big company. And this, I would imagine, although I'm not a specialist, can create all sorts of legal issues. And I was wondering if you can just talk about this scenario. Like if you are this, the, the maintainer in this, or the person, I should say, in this situation where you've created an open source project as part of your day job at a, at a big company, what should you be aware of? Uh, particularly, you know, if this is a project you'd maybe like to monetize in the future, or if you just want to go to a different job and still maintain control of your project. The only question that you need to figure out is who has control of the GitHub account. I think control of the GitHub account gates the GitHub org under which the open source project sits under. That is basically the keys to the community, right? And then who then also controls the Discord or the Slack, right? These are where the community lives, right? And that's where the community talks about. That's where, if your project is now very, very popular, it is now the standard, a standard of which, a mini standard of which in a specific industry and all the conversations of where to move the standard, and all of that is located as part of the GitHub org or as part of as part of Slack or whatever, then that's where the community lives, right? And so I think if you're talking about stewardship, if what you need what you want in the future is stewardship of the community, then you're going to need to negotiate. You can either have it spun out into a foundation. Or you're going to negotiate something with your company to say, hey, we're going to transfer these things from my stewardship in my capacity as company employee to my stewardship in my capacity as community organizer, right? Oftentimes, those two things are tied to the personal emails of the main maintainer anyway, right? And so that does come up when, hey, you know, I'm the main maintainer of it. I will just take these on my way out the door. And because it's tied to my personal email, but then the company feels differently. That's often comes up. Outside of stewardship of the community, I don't think there's too much stuff you have to worry about, right? If it is open source, if it is open source based on an OSI-approved license, there's nothing to keep you from just forking it and monetizing it if you want, right? If you're the one who has all the know-how, all the connections, there's nothing. There's nothing. There's no problem with that, right? Because it's just open source. So if you do have the GitHub account and the community set up to your personal email address and the company's like, doesn't feel like you can just take those with you out the door when you leave, I mean, can you just say, like, screw you? Do they have a right to, st- to do anything? 
in many jurisdictions, it falls to the question of whether the nature of the open source project was something that you were being paid to do in your day-to-day job. Like, let's just say, like, you were being paid to develop an open source community, then all that stuff is company property, right? But if you got, like, a written consent from your manager to say, hey, you know, I'm going to work on this stuff on my side, and then it, it ended up blowing up, that's different, right? In California, for example, employers have a confidentiality invention assignment agreement. Right, the invention assignment agreement assigns and transfers all rights from the employee to the employer. In California, there's something called California Labor Regulation 2870, which limits the scope of that assignment, limits the scope of that transfer to things that are either outside the, the scope of the employer's business and done entirely on the, on the employee's own time and using the employee's own resource, not using company equipment. Right? So... In California, if you fall within that carve-out, doesn't matter what you signed with the employer, that stuff is yours, right? The greater that you can argue that it is that category of exempted or accepted kind of inventions or things that are your, you, you doing on your own time, the better argument you have that is yours and not theirs. Makes sense. Before we get too far along, there's another big topic that I want to address, which is M&A for open source companies or companies that have a really substantial dependence, shall we say, on, on an open source company or an open source project for their business strategy. And I guess the first thing is just sort of an introduction. Like if you're doing M&A uh, work for maybe an acquisition or even a merger, I suppose it doesn't matter. What is different if one or both of the companies in question are what we would call an open source company. Their, their revenue is, is somehow tied to an open source project. Yeah. So we first have to sort of differentiate between ingestion, like in terms of using open source, and then it just for the infrastructure or just for the backend stack, right? Versus open source as an important part of the product stack versus open source, the community, as an important part of like product, marketing, GTM, all, all this other stuff, right? Yeah, I think there's a spectrum there of criticality to the business. Yeah, so I'm thinking about like, you know, a company like HashiCorp, for example. If HashiCorp theoretically is acquired or Red Hat or whatever. So if, if HashiCorp is acquired, is there something different? If HashiCorp merges with another company, is there something different? Also interesting, you know, when HashiCorp makes an acquisition, is there also something that's, that's different that we would want to consider? Yeah, so I think the this was definitely the case a couple of years ago. Maybe it's improved since then. But fundamentally, I think M&A is about basically the three sources of growth. There's organic growth, there's partnerships, and then there's M&A. Right. So to the extent that I have a roadmap item that I cannot achieve using organic growth, my own people, partnerships that I build with other people, I use M&A to fill that gap. Right. And so I think fundamentally there hasn't been this very strong understanding, in my opinion, with a lot of open source related M&As of what role the open source community, what role open source plays in the actual kind of like value of the business. That has not been well understood, in my opinion, by most people sort of putting together the M&A strategy. And so a lot of times there's a lot of things there that fundamentally don't make sense, right? HashiCorp uses open source in this way. Are we, as a larger company, going to be able to do the same thing? Are we culturally set up that way? Are we like 
like, is the community going to be accepting of that, right? Now, a lot of acquirers, traditional acquirers, will look at an open source community like customers, right? They'll look at and just, just homogeneous customers. And we all know that's not true, right? Because a lot of them, potentially, many of them are actually contributors slash customers slash maintainers that like there are these unofficial partnerships that are being created in the open source community with big customers or big enablers of customers, right? And that group of people, which the acquirer doesn't account for, is going to be a big problem, right? Because they're going to see this big acquisition come in and they'll be like, hey, what does this mean for the future of X or Y? And they weren't consulted and they're just going to be have something shoved down their throats. And that could potentially destroy the value of, of what you're buying, right? And so fundamentally, I do think that the biggest thing that is different is that the complexity and the intricacies of what, what an acquirer is buying is often misunderstood. And so you sort of need to adapt a lot of what your strategy and to make sure you're doing a lot more diligence to figure that out. So what would you recommend to an acquirer who is you know, evaluating an open source business and considering acquiring it? I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is just like, you have to look at more than like, you know, what does this company's pipeline look like? But also think, are we going to be able to make use of the real value of, of this company? Or are we just going to destroy it with our very incompatible culture? What would I recommend to a company? Hire a consultant who has a business of open source podcast, who, who understands. Um, <laughs> I, I think that's not entirely a joke, right? I think you, you first have to look within. I think the first thing I would do is I would sit down with the acquiree, right? And ask them to map out for you the web of relationships that are involved between your paying customers, the open source community, and you, the company, right? and to map out how that ecosystem works and how those channels work. Because everything can be kind of formulated in, in sort of quasi-BD, quasi-marketing terms, right? These are all channels. These are all different sort of segments which you potentially sell into or segments that you don't sell into but enable other segments that you invest in that enable other segments, right? And so all of these are things that the acquiree is going to be very familiar with, right? And then I would ask have your internal champion, have the person internally that you think understands this, describe to the acquiree, hey, here's what I think this is. Here's what I think the next steps are after acquisition. Here's what I would do. Here's what I would invest in. And really watch carefully at that interaction to see if your internal person, whom you think understands this, is able to align very successfully with the internal champions of this at the... And it's it just able to grok everything that is happening, right? I think that's the first litmus test, is to figure out whether you have the right people at the parent level to, to figure this out and, and whether they have actually fully thought this through. There's also actually legal diligence, right? In the same way that we just talked about, if all of the accounts, all of the domain names... Uh, all of the social media handles, all of the GitHub, all that is in the personal email address of some principal engineer, and that principal engineer is going to exit as part of the acquisition, you're going to have a lot of problems, right? Because 
regardless of what the law says about company property, that personal engineer owns the community because that personal engineer, or that principal, sorry, that personal engineer, that principal engineer might have founded the community and might have been the one the community respects. And if that principal engineer says, nope, F these guys, I'm going to go somewhere else, everybody could leave with them, right? And so that's a big risk that I've seen explode in acquirers' faces. I mean, even if you do that legal due diligence and you make sure that there is, you know, there's that the email addresses are are all, you know, as they should be for the community. You know, a lot of open source communities, it, even for open source companies, are pretty personality driven. I mean, they are like pretty associated with an individual such that, you know, even the founding engineer six months later says, you know, puts out a tweet that's like, I know, I know, I know the company was just acquired, but hey, let's move the co- the whole community over here. I mean, can you prevent that? Yeah, so you're, you're you're absolutely right. I do think that the legal diligence informs like cultural p- patterns and habits, right? So if all these social media accounts are escrowed by the company's social media company's marketing team, then I think you've set clear lines with the principal engineer, right? And so I think because oftentimes these open source communities, the maintainers just decide to do whatever themselves and it's, it's not a big deal. And you really don't need to check with anyone in those cases. But I think you're absolutely right. I think if the open source community is important to the rationale of the acquisition, then the retention of the chief maintainers of the project is going to be needed to be treated as like as if you needed to retain the CTO to to retain the value of the business, right? You need to treat them the same way, which means you need to have discussions with them about, first off, what their job is going to be after the acquisition and how the new company will be investing in the community and what they'll be doing and whatever, and how you're going to resolve disputes and all this other stuff, right? Because the principal engineer who probably has carte blanche in their current company, just by virtue of the acquisition, is going to rub a lot of people the wrong way, right? By the way that they're doing things with the project and whatever, right? And so having those conversations early is is, is pretty critical to that. And on top of that, I think this is also the, the reason why very mature company-aligned projects tend to bring on professional developer advocates to be the face of the community, face of the company, face of the open source community after a certain period of time. Right, because first of all, it principal engineers sometimes want to do other things, so it diffuses or it lessens or mitigates the risk of folks leaving and folks going and doing other things. It allows people to do other things. Maintaining a project is a lot of work, so they get burned out, right? And so this can help to buttress some of that. Sounds like part of the message is if you're a founder of an open source company and you you know you you are that face of the company and the project in the community. And you want to make your company a little bit more acquirable, like transition yourself out of being that face. Hire some professional developer advocates. Before we wrap up, um, anything else that you want to add about how acquirees or acquirers could be a little bit more savvy and try to make the the acquisition more successful? Yeah, I think I think the treating the open source component of the business as another business unit. I think that's that's the best advice that I can give, right? And allocating the resources and the time and the energy to go to 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 understand that. Excellent. Yeah, actually that's a message I often repeat as well. I think the word I would use is like a product or a product line it maybe for an earlier stage startup, but your your open source project is its own product line. 
or its own product. And you have to treat it like that, not just like, I don't know, like a sister of the product or something. Absolutely. Well, thank you. We'll go ahead and wrap up. But before we do, uh, how can listeners connect with you or learn more about you and your work? LinkedIn is probably the best way. You can just pay me on LinkedIn. Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me. This was great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Business of Open Source. If you'd like to learn more about positioning, messaging, and go-to-market for open source and cloud-native startups, head over to my blog, positioningopensource.com. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Emily O'Meer, and you can feel free to reach out on Twitter or on my website and blog with questions or comments. If you enjoyed this episode, also please share and help more people discover this podcast. Thank you, and we hope to have you next week.